0: If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, we have two passages this morning. First one from Matthew's Gospel, beginning at chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Disciples to tell no one that he was a Christ. And then turning over a page to the 18th chapter and beginning at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And with that, we end the reading of God's word. Let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit says to his church, and I'll let you sit. I do like the rabbinical tradition, where the congregation stands and the rabbi gets sit. I always thought that, that was much more uh, important than the other way around, but we're Americans. We're not rabbis. Some key terms. From these passages, and it is, the, it is the reason why I chose these two passages. Not only that, but they're also in your footnotes to uh, the page of Lord's Day 31. First one is, keys of the kingdom of heaven, or you could say God, Matthew was being a good Jewish, is out of his Jewish background, they don't use the word God. They use the word heaven. And so you can interchange them. And the other one, other two is bind and loose. To bind, especially in the rabbinic idea, is to prohibit. To loose is to permit to bind is to tie up to loose is to set free I like westerns and whenever they capture the bad guys what do they do they bind their hands so that they are uh, tied up and they can't get free and if they find somebody who is bound up, who is innocent, they loose their hands, and so they are set free to be who they are. These are the key phrases of this and of this Lord's Day, and they really help us to understand what Lord's Day 31 talks about. So if you have your book, page 83... Let me give you a little background. You ask, why in the world after the sacraments are they talking about the keys of the kingdom? Well, this is a great transition day. First section of the catechism is your misery, how you are indeed captured by sin. You are bound and uh, tied up in sin. The second part of the catechism is your redemption. That is, how you are being set free by God and through His Son, by His Holy Spirit. And in that, we talked a look about what is faith, what it is to believe, our justification and sanctification. And finally, we got to the sacraments, which talk about our initiation and baptism and our being nourished and fed by the Lord's Supper. So then they get to the, they're going to go into the third section, and the third section is our thankfulness which is going to deal with what does it mean to say we do good works? And secondly, what, is, what are the commandments and how do they apply to us? And thirdly, the last, what is prayer and how are we called to do it? And so they are taking you from your redemption into your thankfulness. And in the middle, they are going to take say, these are the keys of the kingdom by which you get in, or are left out, and this is how you are bound or loosed by those kingdoms. When I was working summers during both uh, college and seminary, I worked at a YMCA camp, and they, for some strange reason, they elevated me into the senior staff. Senior staff, we ruled the whole thing, and we were all given keys as a senior staff. Now, the big thing about everyone who wasn't on the senior staff was how many keys can you get? And so they're always looking to see, can I get 5, 10, 15 keys? Do I carry them around in my key ring and jingle them and it makes me look important and marvelous and wonderful and I'm really top? And we and the, the senior staff used to really chuckle because we only had two keys, but they opened everything in the camp. They were the master keys and so keys remind us one, what is open and what is locked. You used them today when you went out of your house or like us we closed the garage door and it's okay. Keys talk to us about what is open and what is locked and there are two keys that the Catechism talks about are those things uh, which open and lock the kingdom of God to individuals. Verse, uh, Question number 83. What is the office of the keys? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. Preaching of the gospel and the Admission of Discipline. It follows very closely what we call the marks of the church. One, accurate preaching of the word. Two, oh, my kingdom for another blue marker. The administration of the sacraments. And the it's really the proper administration because, you know, we went through... What a sacrament is, therefore you have to understand what is a sacrament, how does it operate. And three, discipline within the church. Discipline used in two different ways. One, and this is probably the most predominant one, training. The church has to train its people. In the Word of God, in the how you live as a people of God, the theology that is within the Word of God, and that's why it's important to get a good theological handle on the Scriptures. Not only systematic theology, but biblical theology. And you're training them, how then shall we live in the light of our redemption by Christ? And the second one is, what happens if someone does not want to follow it, who is a church member. Remember, we in the church deal with the church, primarily. We cannot tell non-church members how they live, because how? They don't want to. That's the very idea. They love the darkness more than the light. You look at our culture, and you're watching the darkness take over, because they love the darkness rather than the light and in doing that you can talk to them till you're blue in the face but if they don't love the light they don't want they really will not want to change you can tell them all the benefits of living the way they are or they ought to but it will have very little effect upon them but within the church the congregation has a right to expect its its members to live in a biblical, godly way. And therefore, it has to have some way in which it helps them deal with unbiblical, ungodly ways of their life. So that's what the question 23. Notice from that uh, question, it does not say that the church opens or excludes people. What it says is in response to the preaching of the word and the discipline of the church, they either open or exclude themselves. So it's not going around and saying, you is in and you is out. I get to pick the 25 people that I want. No. It's saying, this is the requirements, the preaching of the word and the discipline. Are you with us? Or are ye against us? Which is it? And so it really falls back upon the individual and what they do. And ultimately what you'll find out it falls back upon their relationship with the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in their life by the Word of God. Notice how I put that. It's Trinitarian It's also not just a word or not just a spirit. It's a spirit and the word put together. It's always that combination. So that's question 83. Question 84 goes, How is the kingdom of heaven open and shut by the preaching of the holy gospel? In this way, that according to the command of Christ, it is proclaimed and openly witnessed to believers one and all, That as often as they accept the true faith, the promise of the gospel, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merit. And on the contrary, to all unbelievers and hypocrites, that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation abide on them so long as they are unconverted. According to this testimony the gospel, God will judge men both in this life and in the life to come. And here's where our first passage from Matthew 16 comes in. Crucial time in the life of Christ. It was one of those pivotal times of what's taking place. He's just dealt with Pharisees and Sadducees and the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees and how he's warned his disciples, be careful of what you listen to and hear. And then they go to Caesarea Philippi, which is an important issue and not just a kind of geographical add-on they went to Caesarea Philippi which was the center of false worship in Israel it was a place where the caesar was worshiped and other earlier civilizations had their place of worship is a tremendous uh, temple that was there it was well established as the place where you went if you want to worship other than a non non-Jewish person i mean if you're Jewish you go to the temple anyone else goes to Caesarea Philippi and there jesus asked the question first opinion poll in the bible who do people say i am now they didn't give the numbers <laughs> but they said some of you say you're john the baptist well john the baptist had died was he resurrected well That's what they say. Some say you're Elijah, the great prophet. Some say you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Because Jesus did weep periodically. And some just say you're one of the prophets. Well, they understood as they listened to Jesus part of who he was. Because he was a great prophet. But they put the wrong names to him. So now he changes the poll question. He looks at his disciples and says, Who do you say I am? And before anyone else can, as Peter normally does, he pipes up. You are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the one that the Old Testament has told us is coming. You are our Deliverer. You are the Anointed One. That's all wrapped up in that word, Messiah. And you are the living Son of God. You are divine. Now remember, they had been with Jesus for maybe two, almost three years. So they had had a lot of time listening to him, watching him, what he did, and getting really to know him, the intimacy that they had with him. And so it is not abnormal that Peter would have seen this, but to announce it that way was very abnormal because Jesus comes back and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He used his whole name. My Father has revealed this to you again. it has to be something that the Father reveals to a person. you don't understand who Jesus is unless the first of all the Father, by the Son through the Holy Spirit, reveals himself to you, and all of a sudden whew, you're you're the Son of the Living God, man. How did I miss that? Well, because you were blind because you were darkened because you were you hated the light. But all of a sudden, now it flows open. I spent almost 19 years in church, sat under a very fine preacher of the gospel, sang the hymns, went to uh, all the church activities and this, all the youth and children activities, went to camp day, uh, for a week at a time every year, played buck buck which you probably don't know about, but it's a great game if you don't have a bad back. And for 19 years, I didn't understand who Jesus was. And then one night, reading through the Gospels and Acts, all of a sudden became crystal clear. And I'm going, ooh, how did I miss this? The Spirit has to show it to you. And all of a sudden, I think the preaching that I had heard for all those years became alive. See, this is why you sit underneath preaching and teaching. You may not understand it or get it the first time it's given to you. You may not understand it the 10th time it's given to you. But eventually, as the Holy Spirit opens up your life, boom, bingo, it's there. We think... I'll give you two times, and if you can't convince me in two times, I'm out of here. Well, come on. When you were studying algebra, did you understand it the first time you took it? Well, maybe some of you did. You got all smart. No. It takes a long time to understand and put it through and, and work through it. This is what preaching and teaching is all about. It opens. The gospel to those whom the Spirit is at work. We call them the elect of God, the chosen of God. It locks it to those who are not the elect, the chosen. In their blindness, they do not see. In their love of the light, they have no, or love of the darkness, they have no light. And they will continue to revile against it. You wonder why in our culture the message of Christ which is such a beautiful message is so denigrated. It's locked. Now I will say sometimes it's denigrated because people say stupid things. I happened to be going through TV the other day and I went on to this channel. I won't even tell you what channel it was. Where this guy was preaching the word of God and he came to and he said, you know, Adam and Eve fell, but Eve had the worst fall. Why? Because she had sex with a serpent. And therefore, came out of that came Cain. And I'm going, what? <laughs> Where in the world did you get that? And I looked in my Bible, and the fourth chapter of Genesis says, Adam knew Eve, and they produced Cain. I'm going, if you had only read a little bit further, this guy was serious. I mean, I may do that as a joke, but this guy was serious. And I'm going, well, that'll lock up the kingdom for you because you will not understand or, or really under, uh, appreciate what Genesis has to say or what the scriptures are. But preaching of the word either opens it up or locks it. And for those who are not elect, it can lock it very, very tight that even the best burglar in the world could not get in. Again, I would remind you that it is up to the person to make the response. You can't browbeast somebody into the kingdom. You can talk with them, you can pray for them, you can deal with them, but you can't grab them by the lapels. Well, we don't wear lapels anyway. You can't grab them by the sweater and go, you got to believe. You know, I once went to a church. We were visitors. Uh, guy gave a fine sermon. That's well, a good sermon, especially for somebody who was out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and at the end, he started his, it was normal for that group, giving an altar call. And he started once, and then he started to look at the friend of I who were sitting in the back pew, and he gave it a second time, and he gave it a third time, and he gave it a fourth time, and he gave it a fifth time, and he gave it, about the tenth time I was ready, time out, time out, my friend and I are Christians, we don't have to respond. But you see, if we didn't come down the center aisle, and he was bound and determined to make it that way, we would never coming to the kingdom of God. What was important was the response, not necessarily what they knew about us or what we had heard. And so, that's what Jesus said to Peter. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. You're Simon Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, which is true. Gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church was built upon Peter. All you have to do is read Acts Acts 1 to 12, everything's determined by Peter. It's Peter who preaches the first sermon. It's Peter, Peter who leads, who is imprisoned because he's one of the lead uh, apostles. It's Peter who is given the task by God to go to the Gentiles as a Jew, which is unheard of. And everything happens to Peter. It's all built that way. Even when you come to uh, Acts 15, and the Great Jerusalem Council, when they're deciding what do you do to with a Gentile after they believe what what do they have to do, and it says "Peter and the elders." well, that means Peter was the top person however at chapter after chapter fifteen, all of a sudden it turns to Paul, and you don't hear about Peter except in history where they say yes he preached to the to the jews he went a little bit into what we call turkey but finally he ended up in rome but peter's left out why because he he built the foundation and then somebody else and others began to build upon it the other question is what happened to the other 12 10 to, well 11 Apostles. You don't hear about Thomas. You don't hear about Andrew. I really hate that. You don't hear about Andrew. (laughs) Very fine name. You don't read anything about them. You have to go to uh, history to find out anything about what they had done. Of course Andrew went to Scotland and worked and preached there. See, that's why Presbyterians come from Scotland. They have the St. Andrew's cross. That's why we are so great people, St. Andrew. You aren't, you aren't enjoying this at all, are you? <laughs> but it's upon Peter that the church is, is built. But also, it's upon the confession of Peter. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that is the main message that the church has, to preach. Everything else pales in some ways before that. Uh, for instance, you, you look at preaching today, and you discover what they call moralistic therapeutic deism. It's built on morals, it's meant to help heal you, and it means God is way out in the back. And I've listened to sermons where they gave, you know, great illustrations and great stories. And it really was meant to help people get through some of their problems. But finally at the end, when they were all done, they tagged on Jesus. If you want this, you've got to come to Jesus. Why? See, and, and it's as if God is out there. I heard one person say, you've got to dream big dreams. And it was not a TV person. You got to dream big dreams and God will honor your dreams. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, he'll honor your dreams when your dreams are his dreams. That's what he'll honor because it honors him. And his dreams are that the gospel would go throughout the world, that the knowledge of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Those are his kind of dreams. So, Uh, preaching the word, you bind and loose. And according to the response of that is according to whether a person will do it. And there's a loosening and binding that takes place in here. When you preach the word and they come to faith in Christ, they are loosed. They are loose from their sin and they are bound to Christ that's what happens for the believer but with the non-believer he is bound to his or her sins and loosed from not sinning or loosed from freedom that's the binding and loosing that takes care every time We teach or preach; one of those is happening. That's the first one. The second one is from our second passage, Matthew eighteen. And let me just throw in: when you look at sixteen and you and you see verse nineteen, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You really want to take a look at the footnote that goes with that verse because the NA, the New American Standards, really does a justice here. Whatever you have bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That is, all you're doing is putting into practice today something that has been determined yesterday. Why do some people respond to the gospel? That because they were included, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before God ever said, let there be, he knew them and loved them and had set up all of existence so that they would come to Christ. It shall have been. It was So you can't even take credit for binding and loosing. It all goes back to God. Chapter 18, and this is the second one, or the third mark, the second part is discipline within the church. He says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him and catch this word, alone. Have you ever had the experience of someone has been slighted by another and the first thing they do is they run over to their friends and go, <laughs> No, 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 no. I, if someone does that to you, you look at them and say, Have you talked to that person about it? Because you're supposed to do it mano to mano, one to one. And then, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, That is, if he doesn't understand or if he doesn't heed what you said and what he has done is serious enough that he needs to deal with it. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's just Old Testament teaching. But make sure you have at least two others with you so that you you can honestly say now it wasn't just my interpretation. These other two people would tell you that's exactly what that person said, or w- would would not agree that it needs that their sin needs to be dealt with. And then he goes, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, see. You take those two other witnesses and you go to either the elders or you can go to the church as a whole. I mean, there was there's, there's both opportunities there. And you tell it to the church. And you bring it up before them. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I mean as if he were outside, as if he or she is outside the kingdom of heaven. I read this in the Gospel of Matthew, and I think to myself, what was Matthew thinking when Jesus said this? Because you know Matthew's occupation before he became a disciple? He was a tax collector. He knew what it was like to be shunned and pushed aside by his own people because he was working for the Roman government is that's basically what he's say? Gentiles had no status in the faith of the Old Testament and of, of Jesus' time. And it's saying, ask, act as if he's not even a part of who you are. And again, why? Not because you yourselves have made a determination, but that person has said by their very actions, I am not. And all you're doing is affirming what they are saying. Sometimes in church discipline, we come up with a reason why somebody ought to be thrown out. And we do it, and elders or the church can do it simply because, you know, they don't like what that person does. He doesn't wear a tie when he teaches on Sunday morning. (laughs) Or... He doesn't act like one of us. And Jesus said, no, it's got to be much more serious than that. And it's not simply because you don't like what the person does. You do it because the seriousness of the sin is such that it will corrupt the body of Christ and therefore it must be taken out. And this is a this is reason why you do discipline. First of all, you want a person to be restored to the faith and to good standing not only with God through his repentance and and his uh, forgiveness but also with the body of Christ because you allow somebody in there who continues to corrupt that way and it's going to corrupt other people and therefore it needs to be dealt with and you also need a renewal that takes place You want that person, that deepest desire is not, I'm going to get back at you because you didn't like me. Your deepest desire is that they would be renewed and restored to Jesus Christ. And that's why you go through the process. You want to vindicate the honor of Jesus. You want to vindicate who he is and what he's done in people's lives. You want to preserve the purity of the church and of Christian doctrine. Now, you see, if I was in the church of that guy who said Adam, Eve had sex with a serpent, I would be running up to him right away saying, where in the world did you do that? And if he persists in that, then I'd be going taking two or three. Of course, he was on TV, so I was more than two or three who saw it. The channel's a little bit bigger than two, two or three of us. And then I would take it to his church and I'd say, man, you got to get rid of this guy. This guy is corrupting the gospel of Christ. Not because I don't like it, but because it goes against the word and it goes against good teaching. It goes against any theology we have ever known in the church. And he needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with. Gently patiently, prayerfully, you know, it doesn't say it, but I think that behind this in the first process, you go between the person and you, and the first thing you've done is you've prayed about it, make sure your own heart is pure before you do it, and then, because you want the church to be the Holy Bride of Christ, and this is what it sometimes takes. Again, he's, Jesus adds to that, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. All you are doing is what the Lord has already said He's done. You're simply putting into action, and you're simply showing what God has done in the life of an individual. Has he freed them? Has he loosed them from their false teaching or from the pattern of sin? Then you'll see it. Has he bound him? And they, Then you'll see that as well. And again, the church doesn't throw people out. People throw themselves out by their witness to this. One of the uh, reasons sometimes this is not done in our day and age is because people, one, they're embarrassed, and others, you kind of culturally accommodate, and thirdly, you want a whole lot of people to come to your church, and if you start dealing with discipline, you may find that some people leave. (gasps) Heaven forbid. I need 4,000 people on a Sunday morning to pay the bills for the building. (sighs) or you don't even know what's taking place on that. But sec- but primarily, it happens because people will say to you, how dare you throw me out of our church? You, see, you know what's wrong with that? One word. Our church? Since when did the church become our church? It is not our church. It is Christ's church. And in your gospel, you have loosed yourself from sin, bound yourself to Christ. And if you're not being bound and following him, then you're basically saying, I'm not in his church. And if you hear and you bind yourself to the sin and loose yourself from the freedom, then it's not you're not even in the kingdom of heaven, in the church to begin with you need to respond to the good news. And then finally he ends, again I say to you, if two, or th- two of you agree on earth about anything you, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven and for where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. I want you to note the context. The context is within church discipline. But how many times has this been brought out and said, well, let's pray together, and if two or three of us agree, obviously God is going to do it. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when as a church you get together, Christ is in your presence, and you agree that what that person has done is grievous enough to be excluded, and what you have to do is that then you are doing what the Father has, has already done, and It will be done by the Father in heaven. It's not that you can't use it for that, but that's not the primary reason that passage is in the Bible. It says, when you gather together to exercise discipline, there I am in the midst of them. Example, 1 Corinthians 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. for a man has his father's wife, probably his what we would call his stepwife, but he's making love with his stepmother, I'm sorry, what we would call stepmother. He's making love with his stepmother, uh, patently against the Old Testament, but also. Even the pagans don't do that. And the pagans can be really, really paganish. I mean, they can let almost anything else slide, but they will not do that. You are, and you are arrogant. Exclamation. Are you that proud? And, you, you know, you read Corinthians, and you read about the Corinthian church. Yeah, the answer is yeah, they are that proud. We got it all together. Why do we need Paul? I mean, we have the gifts of the Spirit. We are the people of God. We can do whatever we want. Are you arrogant? And you, ought you not you rather to mourn? Shouldn't you be crying about that, that that's ever happening in the midst of the people? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And probably using that same process of Matthew 18. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if and, and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Here Paul focuses upon those last two verses. When you're present, I'm present with you in spirit. I've given you the instructions of how then to live. You ought to do this. Spent three years there teaching them. And the power of the Lord is with you. Therefore, when you come to the decision that he ought to be expelled, expel him. Why? So that in giving him over to the enemy, he will see the reasons why they are being expelled. He will see the depth of what he has done. He will repent, find forgiveness, and come back to the body. And there you find the second letter of Peter. On the second chapter. There's a second letter of Paul to the Galatians. My tongue is getting ahead of my brain. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a man, the punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrows. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. See, that's part of what discipline is. Are you going to be obedient to the word of God, or are you just going to, like in our day and age, let it slide by, let it go. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. When he repented, this man, and in repentance he stopped doing what he had been doing, Paul is saying, welcome back in open arms. When he comes through that back door don't kind of look and go, oh man he's here. You go give him a big bear hug. If you're a hugger. (laughs) You welcome him back into the fellowship because Christ has welcomed him into the fellowship with him. And you treat it, and, and this is part of forgiveness, you treat it as if it never happened you make sure the person knows it better not happen again, but you treat them as a forgiven individual. Now, again, do you see that it's a person who either qualifies or disqualifies themselves from the church? It's not the church doing it. And that's part of the problem with, that happened over the centuries that the church thought, well, we can just say they are or they aren't. No, no. It is a person who makes that decision. You're simply, in a sense, honoring their choice. At the same time, you're showing the love of Christ. For perchance, they will repent, and they will be set free. They will have been loosed from their sin and bound to Christ again. And in doing that, you will find a brother or in possibly a sister who has find found Christ in new life. You also see why this is placed where it is? This is your redemption the faith we profess in the Apostles' Creed, the sacraments we take by baptism being initiated and saying we are cleansed and we are a new people, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper by which we are nourished and sustained and have access into the very presence of Christ. And then we're gonna move into then how do you live? How then do you live? Live in gratitude and thankfulness. But in between is this little segment Make sure you want to do exactly that. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a joy it is to be able to open your word and to listen to it. What a wonder it is that you would give us such a word for we who are in in our basic nature so rebellious and yet you have a great desire that we would become more and more like your son. Help us, O Lord, to take what we have heard that is from you and internalize it. Seal it within our hearts, our minds, our very souls that we may remember it when we need it the most. And Father, we pray that your spirit would be working in each one of us to, demonst- to show where we are falling short. And we would be people who are eager to seek repentance and forgiveness. And we would be people who are eager to follow who you are and what your word has said. And that we would be people who are not impenitent, but people who rejoice and taste and see that the Lord is good. And therefore, O Lord, we commit ourselves to you in the precious name of our Savior Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.